KPFA Radio presents Against the Grain, an acclaimed program of ideas, in-depth analysis, and commentary on a variety of matters, political, economic, social, and cultural, important to progressive and radical thinking and activism. Against the Grain is co-produced and co-hosted by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please enjoy this episode of Against the Grain that previously aired live on KPFA Radio. Today on Against the Grain, why is the aging of populations framed as a crisis? What capitalist logics are at work, and what role does settler colonialism play? I'm CS. Sandy Grande critiques mainstream perspectives on aging and offers alternatives coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. We look at aging and at older people through a certain lens. Mainstream understandings of aging are guided, are dictated by certain logics, logics embedded in and promoted by the system we have, the system of capitalism, and, my guest today would add, of settler colonialism. Should we accept those logics? Should we view older people as a drain on the system? What would a decolonial, non-capitalist, or anti-capitalist stance on aging look and feel like? And what can we learn from how indigenous communities regard their elders and how they view conditions like dementia? Sandy Grande is professor of political science and Native American and indigenous studies at the University of Connecticut. She contributed a chapter titled The Biopolitics of Aging, Indigenous Elders as Elsewhere, to the new volume, Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life, Settler States, and Indigenous Presence. When Sandy and I connected recently, I asked what's been reported or revealed about the aging of the U.S. population and of the global population. Most of what's reported about aging is anticipated through, talked about and anticipated in the registers of crisis. This was even before the pandemic. Entities like the World Bank and even the IMF have been talking about an aging cliff for quite a long time now. I mean, obviously, the general trend is that the world, the global population is getting older and older, and the fastest growing population globally are those aged 85 and above. That population is outpacing all others. Um, The statistics that most will talk about are, you know, the kind of aging cliffs of 2030 and 2050. I think it's by 2030, one in six people in the world are anticipated to be age 60 or older. And by 2050, persons aged 80 years and above are expected to triple. And what we're already seeing in terms of the U.S. is that baby boomer generation, those 65 years and above, already outnumber the population of young children. And I think by 2030, the projections are that that boomer generation will outnumber those aged 18 and under. Yeah, these are stark and and dramatic figures. 
What concerns are governments and multilateral institutions expressing about what the aging of the population will do to the workforce, to productivity, to the economy? I think it's Stephen Katz, uh, who's a sociologist in Canada, talks about all these numbers as a sort of apocalyptic demography, where the economists, policymakers, etc., are talk about everything from a generational war happening because younger people will see this aged population and the sort of drain that they will have on health care and everything as creating such a tension that there will be almost this generational war. But it, the dire forecasts are really about, you know, that the economy is going to plunder, innovation is going to stagnate, and and again, that the, the younger generation will become so overburdened that we're going to enter into this constant state of crisis, really, um, and mostly about the workforce, especially, which we're already seeing, and in terms of social expenditures. And of course, key to this discourse must be the fact that older people, quote, elderly people are seen as as unproductive, right? That they are not seen as contributors to what's really important to the capitalist system, which is um, production and ever more production. Absolutely. Um, And not only not productive, but I would say even that they're counterproductive. So it used to be, you know, at least the narrative about older people to some degree was about, you know, the greatest generation, or maybe they were entering into a phase of like post-productive and Uh, kind of retirement age and the golden years and all of that. Um, And that's really shifted in two ways. One, it's either this sort of, you know, again, apocalyptic demography about uh, this very counterproductive population of people that's growing, that's becoming, um, you know, diseased and declining in every way you would think of. Um, Or there's this other effort to kind of recuperate this generation before they get into that state of just sheer biomedical decline to recuperate them into worth somehow. So you see this emergence of all these, of what is an anti-aging industry. So it's a whole industry that's kind of named to be against aging, which it's hard for me to hear that and not think it's a whole industry organized around against older adults. Because you can't really, against aging, I don't think, without being against older adults. And this anti-aging impulse, this anti-aging agenda, um, driven to what extent by the understanding of, of older people as, as threats, as threats to the system? Absolutely. I think they're being cast implicitly and explicitly as threats to the entire system because the entire system is built around productivity and productivity presumes both youth and able-bodied citizens. So there's a way in which this all this sort of intersects with our thinking about able-bodiedness and disability or, um, you know, all of that literature in general. So there's sort of the mild version of that in that we're an animation of everything around youth culture, um, the implosion of everything from the cosmeceutical industry and the best anti-aging serum to a real rise in what people are willing to do to their bodies in terms of plastic surgery um, and kind of maiming their own bodies. 
all the way to a group of billionaires. It's this company, I think it's called Calico, which is short for California Life Corporation, um, who are investing billions and billions of dollars into, quote unquote, curing the disease of aging. So extending life, you know, extension of life technologies. Um, and there's serious money being put into this and a serious belief, I think, that they can, yeah, cure the human experience in their minds of the ultimate disease of aging or of, you know, ever to, to secure for themselves everlasting life. You're also interested in precarity. How do you understand precarity and how is it related to what we've been talking about? Yeah, the precarity discourse, at least in the U.S., I think didn't really come into wider usage until after 9-11 and the war on terrorism. I think globally it's understood as sort of the condition of the labor class um, and the kind of increasing economic insecurity that was prevalent in Europe. But when it arrived into the common discourse in the U.S., um, it was... I think more about the precariousness of our security and the kind of global threat to what people perceived as our security. And so it became the space of kind of implementing a lot of austerity measures um, and surveillance became a much more normative part of everybody's life uh, to the extent that we are happy to surveil our own lives in our own homes and our neighbors. Um, and so we're very, comfortably live in kind of this U.S. security state. I think it's Lauren Berlant who talks about kind of a democratization of precarity that happened in 9-11. So in other words, there was a population of people who are always kind of living in a state of crisis or who are always under surveillance or who are always in the sight lines of the kind of state military industrial complex. And that condition just became a more wider shared experience. But usually the talk about precarity is about a particular event or that moment since post 9-11. Um, but when I think about this and where we are in terms of our conversations around aging and the threat that supposedly older people present to the state and the whole system, as you've been saying, um, I think about it as a much longer, having a much longer history of that. That if we're really thinking about how this phenomenon of global aging or this rising, fast rising population of older adults serves as a threat to the state, then it's really about the whole founding of a nation on these idea of productivist thinking and productivist ideology, that the whole thing comes undone if you can't continue to expand, 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 whether that's into the dispossession of land and indigenous peoples, or it's expanding into always new markets, new frontiers of various kinds. Um, so when everything is built upon that, then I think there's a kind of precarity that's just sort of baked into the entire project. Sandy Grande joins me. She is professor of political science and Native American and indigenous studies at the University of Connecticut. We are talking about her chapter, she contributed a chapter called The Biopolitics of Aging, Indigenous Elders as Elsewhere, to the new volume Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life, Settler States and Indigenous Presence, 
I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. This project that you are describing is what many scholars and others call settler colonialism. And maybe people who think about settler or encounter that phrase think, well, that's, that's a thing of the past. First of all, many people think colonialism is, is a thing of the past, exclusively of the past. How would you define settler colonialism, both the, the, the colonial part and also the, the settler component of it? Thank you for that question. Yes, lots of indigenous and non-indigenous scholars have contributed to this literature as a way to sort of talk about the colonialism specific to these lands, to the United States and other settler nations. But for now, I'll limit my comments to the founding of what we call the United States. It was a very particular process. There's multiple kinds of colonialisms, but that the folks that colonize these lands and territories or what we would call settlers essentially came to stay. So they were these were never people who imagined themselves as an immigrant class or became immigrants to these lands. Um, they talk about themselves um, as being the peoples of these lands, even though there was obviously millions of indigenous peoples already here. Um, and the other, I think, key component of settler colonialism is, well, two things I would say. In that sense, land was always the initial desire and and remains an initial desire. And so for land to be the desire, there had to be a prior and ongoing removal of indigenous peoples who are already here on these lands. Um, and since there still are indigenous peoples here, it's a removal process of removal and dispossession that is necessarily ongoing. Um, so it isn't something that happened in 1492 or 1776 or whatever we might imagine as these sort of important dates in the establishment of the United States. Um, but it's a continual process. So um, in the works of Patrick Wolfe, as an example, he likes to say, uh, or he put into the vernacular, um, that settler colonialism is a structure, not an event. And by that, he means, again, the sort of structures of removal and dispossession are constitutive or baked into um, how we understand the settler state of the United States. Um, and I think we see that, um, you know, we saw that very spectacularly in the time of the protests at Standing Rock. Um, we see that, you know, pretty much any time, if you see Native peoples in the national news, it's usually around a process, some form of dispossession. So a treaty right violation or a desire for land or something around oil or the issue of missing or murder indigenous women. Um, so that, that's how it's a continual, very much a part of the present experience. And one of the key points of your chapter is that settler logics inform the way older people, and let's talk about this country, are viewed and treated. You mentioned removal and dispossession. In what ways is the logic of removal and dispossession important to understand in relation to what the neoliberal capitalist state is doing or trying to do in relation to people it considers to be a threat to the system or 
people, again, who, who are not productive, who do not contribute in any meaningful way in its view, in the system's view, to the country and the, quote, progress it's supposed to, to make. So when Patrick Wolf was talking about and articulating kind of this expansive definition of settler colonialism, um, he quoted a Native woman, Deborah, I hope I get this right, Deborah Bird Rose, who talked about within this sort of broader project of expansion and removal and dispossession, the only thing Indians had to do to be in the way of that project was basically to stay home. So Native peoples aren't going out still in different places typically to kind of protest the kind of expansion and overrun of their communities. They're most often home and defending their lands. Um, but this way in which Native peoples have always been perceived as being in the way, as being deeply inconvenient or a threat to the project of uh, the United States and uh, the development of the, of the nation. And while it's very different, so I'm really careful in my writing to say it's, I'm not certainly not making an argument that this rising population of older adults is the same as Native peoples, but I do see some of the similar logics. Um, and a lot of what I write about is sort of my own experience as a caregiver, uh, first for my mom who passed in 2014 and now for my father who is 95 um, years old and going strong, thankfully. Um, but I see similar kinds of logics. You know, there's there's a logic of erasure. So there becomes a moment in an older adult's life, older person's life, and I saw this again with my parents, where at some point, if I brought her into a doctor's visit, for example, the doctor would stop talking directly to her and pretend she was not in the room and talk to me uh, about her care, about her body, about you know what the plan of intervention would be. So in some ways, it's a kind of erasure of her personhood. Um, and when I thought about those kinds of experiences and I map it onto kind of this broader sense of why is this global population of older adults being cast as such a threat? And the language around this population sometimes is quite severe, like the silver tsunami is going to come crashing down on us when they're, you know, they're just sort of, older people who are quite, it um, can be obviously quite sweet and pleasant to be around. Um, and I started to think these are people that are being perceived or constructed as being in the way, in the way of the global economy, in the way of production, in the way of younger generations. And when it didn't seem possible or certainly not palatable for the democratic state to get rid of older people. Although in the pandemic, I don't think any of us will forget those piled high corpses in nursing homes and stuff, people that were just left abandoned. Or when there wasn't enough medical supplies, there was a lot of calculated decision-making about not offering assistance to older people in favor of younger people. Um, but generally speaking, an intervention like getting rid of older people uh, through violent means is, is never really considered. So the two things that I see happening is, again, what I've talked about earlier of this recuperating older bodies into worth. And what I see there is treating, you know, just as the land at some point was treated, they talk, 
about corpus nullius, or this is just empty, vacant land for the taking, that their own bodies, the bodies of older peoples, are being treated as corpus nullius, or like a, a vacant body that we can now think about in terms of property to be, you know, sometimes post-death bought and sold, sometimes thought about in terms of um, profit in nursing home industries or in Medicare and Medicaid. Um, there's whole aging portfolios now that you can invest in. There's an aging index on Wall Street. Um, there's a, this huge move, okay, if we're not going to get rid of this population, then how are we going to profit? How can we turn this all into a mode of profit? Um, and then again, the sort of the whole industry, billion dollar industry of just getting rid of aging altogether. So while it might be too violent to say, well, we're just going to like get rid of this, these older people, it is clearly palatable to think about what if we have a world without older people by getting rid of aging. That's the voice of Sandy Grande, G-R-A-N-D-E. She teaches at the University of Connecticut. Her book, Red Pedagogy, Native American Social and Political Thought, was published in a 10th anniversary edition. We are talking about a chapter she contributed about the biopolitics of aging and her perspectives on indigenous elders, which appears in a new volume edited by Renee Dietrich and Kirsten Knopf. It's called Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life, Settler States and Indigenous Presence. It's published by Duke University Press. And I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You write that the work of caregiving, which you have been doing, I think you began in 2005. Your dad suffered a mild heart attack and then a stroke had aortic valve replacement surgery, was later diagnosed with stomach cancer. Around the same time, your mother began to suffer a succession of chronic and acute illnesses, had a series of falls, the last of which was catastrophic, ultimately fatal. You write that the work of caregiving is often constructed as a subtractive experience. Subtractive in what way and was your own personal experience, is your own personal experience of caregiving, since your father is still alive, do you consider that? Do you see it as subtractive? There is a real care crisis right now. And by real, I mean it's sort of manufactured by the ways in which the state has divested from health care in various ways. And certainly the state care or biopolitical management of older adults generally, but there is, um, when you have a rising population of older adults um, and an under-resourced, typically immigrant population of caregivers, as a, in some ways, a declining labor force, you have this crisis of who's going to be caring for older adults. Um, and thankfully, caregivers are now in this moment uniting and demanding uh, fair wages and better working conditions, especially since the pandemic. So that's one positive thing that might come from that whole experience. But the entire system is really rests upon, I think the number is over 5 million family caregivers who are in addition to sometimes caring for younger children um, because they can't afford the astronomical cost of private care, 
are caring for older adults in their homes, sometimes um, with very serious diseases, including Alzheimer's, which is also, uh, or dementia-related diseases, which is also on the rise. So in addition to aging being a crisis, you often hear conversation about the care crisis, um, not just in the U.S., again, globally. And so when I was caring for my mom, especially, which is not to suggest at all that that labor is really challenging labor. It's physically, can be physically challenging, um, but certainly, you know, challenging to always care for them in the way that you hope to um, because of the, mostly because of the encounters, at least for me, that I had external um, with doctors and institutions and nursing homes and hospitals and the way I witnessed her being cared for, which is really to say often not cared for very well. Or the multiple ways you'd have to advocate, you know, with pharmacy. It was a constant battle of advocacy for attention, for insurance, for it it just seemed endless. So that part is really draining. The part that I saw completely not talked about or completely evacuated from stories Um, except for in really maudlin and kind of like fake ways, was was the kind of connection that came. Uh, I was always close to my mom, but this was really different. It's a real inversion of the child-parent relationship. And you really, my experience with her was was quite different in terms of, you know, the kind of closeness that came from that. Um, Watching her own struggles through various illnesses. She had breast cancer. She had with these she had rheumatoid arthritis with the falls you know she started to have a series of strokes and she did suffer from you know a lot of cognitive challenges and seeing her through and still maintaining a relationship with her through all of that as as hard as it was there was something really beautiful from that and there was also my mom's own sense of as the older she got and to some degree the more dependent which is often a dirty word um in a capitalist society, she saw herself as becoming more powerful because she was coming closer. She was fearful of death, but she also understood it in a particular way as it giving her access. She's going to pass on to a different existence, a different mode of existence, a different world, and in many ways become a much more powerful um, entity in all of our lives. She'd become an ancestor. Uh, And for us, that means something very specific. Um, And so there was no way in which outside of external to our experience where I could see anyway, and this was, you know, several years ago now, um, there was nowhere I could turn to and see this alternate understanding of what it means to get older and to be older and to think about the changes she was going through, the changes we were going through. And so after she passed in 2014, I think this is where I started to really think about aging and the distinctions between what it means to be an older adult in sort of settler and capitalist societies and what it means to be an elder in indigenous communities, elder capital E, which is not necessarily, um, it's, it's not a, a chronological so you can have young elders um, but it's a it's more of an honorific bestowed upon people usually older adults not exclusively 
um, that are living in ways that are true to their own traditions and communities. So that's what sort of animated my interest in starting to write about this and kind of disentangle and do some reading around aging and older adults. This is C.S. Song, and we'll be right back after this message from KPFA. KPFA Radio is a community-powered, listener-supported radio station based in Berkeley, California. We are able to bring you this content through donations and support from our listeners. Please consider supporting KPFA through a donation by visiting www.kpfa.org donate. And now let's get back to the program. Welcome back to Against the Grain. You mentioned dependence, you mentioned community. How important is individualism, by contrast, to settler colonial logic? And what does that mean for the way in which the neoliberal state envisions successful aging, promotes a certain version or type or mode of successful aging? Yeah, I think individualism as the is at the crux of everything in a in a settler capitalist society. There was a real turn, you know, emerging around the whole kind of discourse of self care um, that is very common right now, where a term in the aging studies and literature came about of successful aging um, as a movement, and it was cast more or less against, you know, the ways in which, you know, older adults were viewed negatively and as a way to say, you know, aging doesn't have to happen that way. You can negotiate various things and choose to take care of your body and, you know, advance the science of nutrition and this and that and, you know, 60 is the new 40 and all these things that we hear and don't necessarily think about. Um, emerge from this real concerted effort to put this notion of successful aging into the world. And while a lot of that is certainly positive, I think um, the other piece of it is that the kind of process of aging well was made an individual choice. So if you just chose to eat well and you chose to like see your doctors and you chose to recreate in certain ways, then you're going to be a successful aging. The flip side of that, you know, the implied component of that is that there would be these unsuccessful agers who choose supposedly not to not not that it's an issue of access or equity or resources or poverty or, you know, um, but that you're making these poor choices and then you wind up in this, you know, old decrepit state and then you're just a drain on the system for everybody else. So I think the way in which aging is viewed in a capitalist society is very much through this kind of notion of the individual is responsible for everything. It's the, it's the unit of rights, it's a unit of exchange, it's a unit of personhood. Talk more about older people being viewed as a drain on the system. You're pointing, I take it, to the message that people who don't age successfully will be a societal burden in terms of public expenditure? Yeah, I think that's at the heart of it, that if we make individual peoples responsible for their individual lives. Meanwhile, they, you know, would have invested all of their working adult life in sort of, in a sense, giving their labor and their lives to the state. The state is now going to turn their back on them. Um, It isn't as if Social Security just comes through beneficence, but that's people's wages that have been garnished to kind of 
than that they would get back theoretically at the end of their lives, toward the end of their lives when they need that, uh, when they're when they're ostensibly beyond, you know, sort of the working stage of their life. And there's this other kind of, I hesitate to call it a movement, but move now around aging in place. And aging in place means rather than put your relative in a nursing home or assisted living or whatever, that the state will now encourage you in many incentive programs and all kinds of things for older adults to age in place. And that's being cast as the best thing. Now, you know, it's something that comports with um, a lot, I would say, uh, indigenous values within my own family. But I think it's the way that it's cast presumes a lot of things that uh, in place that everybody has a place that everybody has a home that's adequate. And overall, I don't think it's a happenstance or a mistake that um, resources to sort of help older adults age in place, um, the expenditure and the level of state is much, much significantly less than if that person was going to be cared for in a state agency. So you can have older adults that aren't living with someone, that are living alone in their apartments, sometimes with stairs you know, doing whatever they can to take care of themselves um, because of this sort of ideology of individualism. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, you have children raised in the same ideology feel like they don't have responsibility to care for their parents or they live far away and they just can't do it. Or, you know, so you see older adults in all kinds of dire straits um, in risky situations um, because the model of care has become so individualized and, and organized around personal choice as if anybody would choose to live in this way if they had sufficient alternatives. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Sandy Grande joins me. She is professor of political science and Native American and Indigenous Studies at the University of Connecticut. She's a founding member of New York Stands for Standing Rock, a group of scholars and activists that promotes the aims of Native American and Indigenous sovereignty and resurgence. She's the author of Red Pedagogy, Native American Social and Political Thought. And I found her article, The Biopolitics of Aging, Indigenous Elders as Elsewhere, in the new volume, Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life. Settler States and Indigenous Presence. You argue, Sandy, that Indigenous perspectives on aging are crucial, crucial to grasp and understand. You Let's start with this. Is aging in Indigenous communities viewed or experienced as a crisis? I mean, it's hard to make such a global statement around Indigenous peoples since um, there's so many different uh, communities of Indigenous peoples. But I would say Indigenous communities, certainly within the U.S., but we're obviously a global peoples, um, aren't immune to the kind of crisis that surrounds them. So as an example, um, at the height of COVID, Indigenous communities, like other communities, were experiencing a very high rate of death among their elders. And it was really concerning because um, the concentration of language speakers, fluent language speakers, tend to be among the older adult population. So some communities lost um, 
significant portion of their language speakers, which can be catastrophic to those communities. Um, so there is a sense in which they feel the crisis. Um, I don't think that crisis in indigenous communities is disassociated from the crisis that is colonialism. I think they more readily make that connection. That said, I do think there is a shared value among indigenous peoples of their elders, um, elders and ancestors, that isn't common in the same way, certainly within a capitalist society. Um, so there's a sense that elders, again, not always about chronological age, but as people, older adults, um, maybe become elders within their community, that they're understood to have gained a, a certain level of knowledge and experience. In some communities, um, elders share a good part of the responsibility for raising children because of that. Um, again, they tend to be language speakers. So there's a form of responsibility toward elders as well as reverence toward elders uh, and a kind of care of elders that I think is common, is not associated with crisis um, or just burden or certainly cost within indigenous communities. Um, so my interest is mostly in looking at indigenous elders and how to me there's sort of a living embodied counterfactual to how we think about aging and older adults in non-indigenous and or capitalist societies. And so why a, a, a lot of my current work is really based on my experience um, with my mom specifically, but also um, within the community, a broader community of Quechua peoples and how we understand aging in a much broader sense. Yeah, and reading from your, your chapter, your article, Indigenous elders are persons identified by their communities as knowledge keepers and resources of generational and traditional continuities. You cite research on certain First Nations peoples indicating that elders are considered close to the spirit world. In what sense is that statement, was that statement made, and, and what do you take from that? Yeah, so it's common within a lot of different indigenous sort of systems to think about life as a cycle within my own community. Um, I think it would move from a cycle maybe to more of a spiral, but that life is cyclical. So, you know, from birth to death and it's those closest to birth and death would be kind of close to each other in, in the sense of, I guess, their life's force or being in the world. Um, and because of that, they're closest to this point of transition, whether it's in the cycle or again, among the Quechua peoples, there's more understanding of sort of multiple worlds that are in operation uh, simultaneously, that those are particular sites of connection, strong connection, and therefore might be associated with certain kinds of access to knowledge or a sense of power that those that are not at a point of transition have access to. And in that context, very interestingly, you bring up dementia and memory loss. Now, dementia, of course, in mainstream culture is viewed as, a, as an unqualified negative. It's something to avoid. We spend all this time trying to figure out how to, how to keep from 
or keep family members from getting that condition. Um, and yet there are alternative explanations for dementia-related conditions within at least some indigenous communities. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, so I would say absolutely in the common sort of aging literature, dementia and Alzheimer's related diseases and illnesses are thought to be, you know, spaces of just darkness and decline um, and everything negative you could think of. Um, and those are really, again, not to kind of evacuate the idea that it's a really challenging um, illness or condition for families and for the person experiencing um, dementia or Alzheimer's. But I was, and my mom, um, she refused that categorization vehemently, but you could empirically notice symptoms of cognitive decline, what would be understood as cognitive decline, whether it's memory or short-term memory, uh, searching for words, kind of confusion, um, the kinds of things that we would associate with a dementia, Alzheimer's related disease. So I became interested or fascinated to read about this and found most compelling um, work done. I think what I cited in that chapter was um, by a team headed by researcher Wendy Hoko among the Sequipemic people. And I think the story, if I recall it correctly, the story goes is that, you know, this team of researchers went into the Sequipemic peoples to, you know, both educate around Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases and to see, you know, what, what they would find in that community. And they were describing, they would say, oh, you know, we're interested in speaking with families or caregivers or adults with Alzheimer's. And they're like, oh, we don't, we, we don't have that here. And they said, well, you know, there's this population and here's here's what the disease is about. And the more that they talked about it, they said, oh, are they talking about somebody like, you know, Uncle Joe or something? And then uh, one person said something to the effect of, well, we don't we don't say that Uncle Joe has Alzheimer's or dementia. We just say Uncle Joe is elsewhere. And that notion of somebody just being elsewhere um, and, you know, within the study, there was also other ways to describe of, of the elder having, you know, a kind of specialness about them or access to information that they don't have. So if they spoke in ways that we might not understand, the idea was they were in conversation with a spirit world or another world or another place or elsewhere. And that reframing of it was just really helpful to me as a caregiver, as a family caregiver to my mom. Again, it doesn't, I think it's often read of like, well, that's nonsense and you kind of uh, denying the whole biomedical aspect that there's brain differences and, you know, and that this is a disease or however you might talk about it. Um, and I don't think it's about that. I think obviously there, there's, we can recognize empirically that something is changing in this person's body and brain. But I do think it can become really significant how you think about that. If you think about that as decline or death or decrepitness or fear or loathing or whatever it is, that conditions a lot of that person's care and treatment. If you think about that person as being elsewhere or having access to things you don't have access to, it can still be really challenging 
um, and certainly was for me at times, but it also helped me to see and understand things differently. And absolutely toward the end of my mom's life, um, some of the experiences I had with her, I think were just nothing short of miraculous. And I felt so honored to be present while I was witnessing the kind of changes in herself and her body and her, and her brain. That's the voice of Sandy Grande. She is professor of political science and Native American and indigenous studies at the University of Connecticut. We have a link to her faculty page on our website, againstofthegrain.org. You are listening to Against of the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Sandy, I wonder if you could turn to um, page 79 of this book. Again, it's called Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life. And read the second to last paragraph. And this is about you being with Ona, who is your mother, who was diagnosed with dementia. I'd love it if you could read that for our listeners and for me. Sure, happy to. It was a privilege to be by Ona's side as she journeyed elsewhere. She reported regularly in great and vivid detail about her travels to and from the spirit world. During the Ukrainian crisis, she recounted her visit to the Oval Office and the advice she gave to President Barack Obama. She also traveled back home to Peru, talking about her school and working so hard to please the nuns. Across her cognitive excursions, she was reflective, powerful, and instrumental. In her final days, she spoke in all of her languages, English, Spanish, and Quechua, as she moved effortlessly through her entire lifespan. She even relived in quite dramatic and visual fashion the experience of giving birth. Across all of it, as the so-called disease of dementia progressed, she gained a deeper sense of herself, becoming ever more cognizant of where she had been and where she was going, until eventually she went. As some health conditions like dementia are, viewed as as evidence of or symptoms of disease rather than as, say, a spiritual state of being elsewhere, what happens to families' beliefs regarding whether they're qualified to care for their elders at home? Yeah, it's a bit of a conundrum. I do think it's helpful to have information to be educated about what to expect in terms of the biomedical signifiers of a progressive disease, which might be absent in communities. I I didn't, you know, as you noted, I'm a college professor and studied political science, and I didn't know the literature on dementia or what to even expect or what it looked like really in real time. And it's helpful to have information, I think. To the extent that this can be another removal and replacement of knowledge um, and a dispossession kind of of community knowledge is worrying. So to the extent that that information is offered as a way to say, well, you don't have the capacity now to care for your elders, so we're going to put them and take their Medicaid dollars with them and put them in this nursing home away from community um, is troubling. To be dismissive of, you know, well, your mom isn't, she didn't go to the Oval Office, obviously, um, that teaches one to be dismissive of what their elder is going through is also troublesome. So 
I think the danger is that this can become another site of removal and dispossession. And every day I do feel like biomedicine, you know, finds these discoveries, you know, which are things that indigenous peoples knew forever. Um, it can happen that indigenous knowledge is actually valued and we can understand it in a way that might give us different insights about how to be in the world. And I think my biggest hope for looking at aging differently and elders differently is that just what we talked about in the beginning when we built this entire society around productivist logics, around expansion, about accumulation, and we are all, I think you have to be living in a hole to not see the effects of that. Whether it's the air coming down from the from quote unquote Canada's fires as if you know it's only their fault, uh, where we literally can't breathe. You know, there, it's hard to look at any vector of analysis right now and just see this isn't working. This is not working for anybody. And at some point, even the billionaires can't build walls high enough or fast enough to keep themselves protected. You know, whether they think they're gonna catapult themselves into space or I don't know what they think they're gonna do. But this current paradigm really isn't working. So if we think about aging instead of a crisis, but as a portal to kind of rethinking what we have done, how we've connected the idea of work to production, um, life to production, living to youth, or even able-bodiedness. If there's a way we can start disentangling how we think about life through the experiences of older peoples, um, through the experiences I had with my parents, um, and what they can teach us if we let ourselves be taught by them. And it, it's definitely not easy. You know, I think I start this project in a preface of my new book talking about, you know, there's a way in which I feel like I am a very impatient person. I like to move fast, I like things that go fast. But you can't do that when you're caring for older people. The, the entire register and pace of life is much slower. Um, and there's something about being forced to live in that world, you know, and in some ways for me, like initially some, and sometimes can continue to feel like I'm pushed in there, that space. Um, but if I open myself up to it and I let the world kind of slow down and I speak slowly with them so they can understand or I, you know, listen to them or I walk at their pace or I understand how they need to be um, protected, you know, to feel good in the world there's something that really changes about, and has enabled me to see even more deeply how we've kind of structured life otherwise or outside of that experience in a way that really is dangerous for everyone, not just our elders or older adults. Sandy Grande, G-R-A-N-D-E, teaches political science and Native American and indigenous studies at the University of Connecticut author of Red Pedagogy, Native American Social and Political Thought. And we've been talking about an article she contributed about aging and indigenous communities and capitalism and settler colonialism and a whole lot more. You can find it in the volume Biopolitics, Geopolitics, Life, Settler States and Indigenous Presence. Thank you, Sandy, for writing this article for your work and for joining us today. 
Absolutely my pleasure. I really enjoyed being in conversation with you. And if I could just add, it, it just occurred to me that when I was talking about uh, this notion of Indigenous peoples being elsewhere who were maybe in the state of some cognitive decline, that that was actually the work of Neil Henderson and Carson Henderson. Neil is a Choctaw uh, scholar. So I just wanted to make that correction that that was their work. Although Wendy Hochul does amazing work on dementia in Indigenous communities as well. Thanks for that clarification. I'm CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to find more KPFA radio content, log on to www.kpfa.org. Also follow us on social media by visiting Facebook at KPFA 94.1 and Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at KPFA Radio. Plus, check out our KPFA TV video content on YouTube and twitch.tv at KPFA Radio. Subscribe to this podcast and stay updated to when we release episodes of shows representing the best of KPFA Radio.